Welcome to the Throwback Podcast. This is the podcast where Travis and Susie talk shit about all the movies of their childhood, those made in the 80s and 90s, and see how they stack up through a 2021 lens. Enjoy. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else in between and undecided, and welcome to the Throwback Podcast, the podcast where we delve into the murky depths of our childhood and teen years and dig out some gold nuggets or some less desirable attributes as well, and we look at the films that we loved when we were young and see how they hold up under the brutal stare of 2021 this is, I think, expedition number 16 into the swamp of Susie's uh, childhood and mine, to a lesser extent. I think it's mine more as a desert. But with me, as always, is my co-host, CEO extraordinaire, cybersecurity ninja, I think Jedi, um, Susie Jones, how are you this evening? I'm very good. I'm feeling very humbled by that description. <laughs> I just suddenly thought of Ninja, but I remember the reason why that's in my head is because they had that weirdo company in America doing a vote count in Arizona, and they were like the, the cyber ninjas. Well, um, we, do, we do, in our business, we do have a customer success ninja. That is actually her title. It was her choice, but um, yeah. I've had one to be associated with that mob in the States. They sounds a little odd. Anyway, we are not here to talk politics, so we can. That's a... Now, if you want to hear us talk politics, do just jump on the Facebook page. Tell us that. Well, that'll be uh, that'll be exciting. Not. Uh, we are here this week to explore our latest journey into the past, and this will be 1988's Willow, which was uh, came up on the wheel in our last episode, which was of a magnificent Care Bears episode, which just mm-hmm. delves into complete chaos at the end, which um, hasn't been released when we're recording this episode, but I imagine. By the time you hear this episode, you will hopefully have had a chance to hear the Care Bears episode. This was one of yours, I think, correct? Correct. I loved this movie as a child. Absolutely adored it. So, interesting film. I spoken, we've spoken, I think, about two different people we know who were unfamiliar or very confused with this film. Uh, a friend of yours, yes. I just had, had to be strongly reminded of what the film was about. Yes. Uh, and a friend of mine initially thought, it said to me, is that that one with the mice and the guy from Back to the Future? And initially you and I thought it was Stuart Little because, of course, that mm-hmm. had a mouse in it and mm-hmm. Michael J. Fox voicing yeah. the mouse. In fact, I, I have clarified that she was, in fact, referring to a Crispin Glover film from 2003 called Willard, which is right. um, okay. a, a young man with an unusual connection to rats uses them at his own sociopathic will. Now, <laughs> that is not the film we're talking about today, but it's surprising when you talk to people because this is, while this is not a suggestion of mine, it is a film I strongly and fondly remember from, um, from my youth as well. So if you are like the, our friends and a little bit confused about whether it involves someone from Back to the Future, it does not. Uh, a young farmer is chosen to undertake a perilous journey in order to protect a special baby from an evil queen. This was directed by Academy Award winner Ron Howard, he of Apollo 13, A Beautiful Mind, Cocoon, American Graffiti. He was, in, he was, of course, in Happy Days, if you want to go back a long way. 
father of Bryce Dallas Howard. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written by a guy you might have heard of called George Lucas. Yes. Uh, if you don't know who that is, why are you fucking listening to us? <laughs> Go and stand in the corner. We are not interested in hearing your views. <laughs> he, of course, of Star Wars and Indiana Jones fame. Starring, this is actually quite contentious, his top billing goes to a very young and very handsome Val Kilmer. We enjoyed his work last night, and I think we, at least I observed, there's something very young Harrison Ford about him in this film. A very young Harrison Ford about him. He has such charisma, and he just has such presence, and he just owns every scene that he's in. So as much as it is a little bit controversial that he got top billing, I like I get it because he's pretty he's he's a solid character in this film. And Joanne Whaley gets second billing. Uh, she plays Sorcia. She's the note that Val Kilmer plays a character named Mad Mardigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Joanne Whaley and Val Kilmer met and fell in love on this film and were later married. Mm-hmm. Uh, she became Joanne Whaley Kilmer for a while. I don't believe they're married anymore. But this is where the controversy comes in. The third billing is Warwick Davis, who plays Willow Offgood. You'll note the film is called Willow. It is named after him. He's on screen in pretty much every shot in the film, almost. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, Yet he gets third billing behind. Look, Val Kilmer had just come off Top Gun, Mm -hmm. I suppose, you know. But Warwick Davis is, his film is about Warwick Davis. Yes. Those who don't know who Warwick Davis is, and that's probably fair. I don't say that he's done anything quite this prominent since you would be surprised how often he pops up in stuff but Warwick Davis I guess I don't know what the PC term is now he's a short statured actor uh, a small person he played an Ewok in I think or he's in um, one of George Lucas's earlier yeah it was an Ewok in in Return of a Jedi when he was 12. Not just an Ewok he played played a Wicket and he played Ewok yes and he played Professor Flitwick in Harry Potter films no, I've never seen any of that. Sorry, I saw one of his prequels and it wasn't good. Um, he, was in, the, he was in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Do not judge the Harry Potter films based on the <laughs> prequels. They should never have been in, in existence ever. Well, where there's money to be made. Um, and he was he was 12 when he played Wicket in 1983. And George Lucas told him he had a film he might be interested in. And a few years, five years later... Here he is in this, and he's 17. You pointed this out. I did not know this. He's 17 when this film was shot. Yeah. Uh, and what an amazing performance from a 17-year-old kid. Incredible performance. I, I mean, I know we'll get into the detail of it, but I, at no point when you watch this film do you think, oh, come on, that guy's not a dad or, you know, not a paternal figure in any way. But there's no way he was. He was 17 when he filmed this. He's, it's... He's, I think maybe the, the daughter, the girl who played his daughter in the film, the actual his actual daughter. Yes, he's only twelve years older than her. Yeah. So it's it's a remarkable performance considering I'd never even stopped and thought about it before you mentioned it to me. Well, um, and, and the only reason why I know that is because uh, because I've loved this film for most of my life. I mean, I was six when this came out, and I've loved it just forever. I, I watch it several times a year, most years, Um, I saw something um, really not that long ago celebrating his 50th birthday. Like, what do you mean his 50th birthday? He has to be older than that. And then I looked it up and I'm like, wow, he was really, really young when he filmed this film. And I, I had never picked up because he is 
just absolutely fantastic in it. He just owns this role. Yeah. And you got to give, like, George Lucas cops a lot of shit, less these days after the Disney sequels. Um, one thing he certainly did do well, at least at this point in time, is because he had an eye for talent. Oh, yeah. Um, the story, if people don't know it, but Harrison Ford was working as a carpenter on the set of the first Star Wars film, or I think it might have been, yeah, he's a carpenter, doing casual carpentry work, and I think they brought him in to run lines with some of the actors who were auditioning for for, um, for Han Solo, and George said, no, I want him. Yeah. So he was a nobody, and we, we know Harrison Ford today, and of course Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, all those people. So, And the fact that he saw, he saw in Warwick this role five years before he even shot it, in, in when it. he was playing a character with no no words in English, I mean, Wicket doesn't speak in English, but he recognised what Warwick Davis had. It's incredible. So other names you might note in here, Billy Barty is in this film, for those who are big fans like me, of the 1987 Masters of the Universe film. Billy mm-hmm. Barty was a little dwarf character in that film mm-hmm. uh he's he's a bit of a legend billy barty in mm-hmm. in small people roles he's been he's unfortunately passed away 20 years ago but he was in he was just one of those guys you saw in all sorts of stuff and that voice is very very familiar very uh familiar. you have a big big name in here was kevin pollack he pointed out to me yeah he plays the character of rule kevin pollack you'd know from films like the usual suspects the whole 10 yards a few good men he has a very decent podcast these days, I think, from memory. Um, he's just one of those. You look him up. If you don't know who he is, look his face up. You'll be like, oh, that ah, dude. Exactly. Uh, I actually, again, you pointed it out to me. I'm like, oh, that guy. Yes, of course. I know Kevin Pollock. And in the realm of small actors, you might also, for keen eye, notice Tony Cox in here. Tony Cox, best known for his role as the offsider in the Bad Santa films. He was the, the elf in the Bad Santa films. And also Gene and Marsh. This has Gene Marsh. Yes, you know, it's a good one. You may, again, you may not know the name, but if you were scarred like we were scarred by Return to Oz in the 80s, you'll probably remember her face. She is a scary, scary woman. She plays the Wicked Queen in this. She played the nurse in uh, Return to Oz. And she is a scary-looking woman and plays scary roles very, very well. But she, she's brilliant in this role. So we talked to give you a bit of a synopsis earlier. It's a young farmer chosen to take a perilous journey in order to protect a special baby from an evil queen. We we start the film with the evil queen who is searching for a baby who is uh, prophecy tells will overthrow her or kill her or destroy her or you know potentially you know start a tech startup that will undermine democracy throughout the world. I'm not sure that the script doesn't go into great detail about that, but she's trying to kill the baby. You know before it's born, we see. Uh, the scene where the actual baby is born and she's smuggled out of a castle by a nursemaid who is the unsung hero of this piece, I think, because she doesn't Absolutely. know the name. Um, and, and is torn apart by dogs. <laughs> um, so we see her, we see the baby put on a raft of reeds and put down a river, which is a nice little sort of homage to the Moses story. And that's that, while, while the nursemaid shortly afterwards is torn apart by some terrifying looking dog monsters. And I'm like, Let's see, that is the first time in this film you'd be like, and this is for children. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all of that's in that, the first five minutes of this film. And and that is why we are the way we are, uh, everyone. <laughs> we were brought up what I know. And I, I, I did I did note at the time, and I say this a lot in the show, and you go, 
I wonder whether they would do that today, and I don't think they would. I think that's just a little bit too aggressive and a little bit too violent. I I agree. I don't think they would do that today, but I don't I don't know that I agree that they shouldn't do that today. I, I think you and I, I both I, said I, last night that um, I feel like they underestimate kids today. I, I tend to agree. I think kids are capable of, of, of a little bit more. Um, you know, you can. I think being scared isn't necessarily a bad thing, as long as you know you're scared of the right things. So, you know, like being scared of a. I'd much rather than be scared of a dog monster in a in a fantasy film than than you know, your nuclear war or Donald yeah. Trump or something. Um, but anyway, so the, the baby is discovered in a small town populated by. I say small people. Alwyn. Alwyn, sorry. Yes. Um, one of the fascinating things about this, and one of the things I quickly observed watching it was, uh, and I said to you, is that, geez, George Lucas creates a world well, doesn't he? Yeah, so well. You just. I mean, you quickly you, sort of. There's you, this, there's, you can feel the story, can't you, going on? Yeah, right? You don't even need to hold it. You're transported into this world that is completely different to our world. And that happens from the first scene where you see the baby being held up in the castle and then you see the queen and then the person smuggling out the baby and everything. Um, and then it, it, you know, the music, I mean, the soundtrack to this, again, by one of my great loves, but the soundtrack and the score then transports you to a different part of this world. And at no, you just don't question any of it. It is a fully formed world in every different scene that you're in. And it's, it, it just does it so well, so well. It, it, and it's quickly, in that little world, like you can quickly feel, like it feels like a really fully, as you say, it feels like a world of story. We don't have to be told no. everything, right? We don't have to be told where we quickly learn that even in a small person community, Warwick Davis's character, Willow, is a fairly small character and, and a fairly middling to low social stature. We meet him being mocked by the villagers while he's performing magic. He's a trainee magician for one of a better term um anyway, he's filming his wife that's, that's a good way of putting it uh, his wife find the baby take the baby in without really knowing what's going on um uh, during a particular a festival in the town they uh, a town is attacked by the uh dog monsters which i found out are actually rottweilers in rubber masks um really? and they're very effective they they're are very, very effective very, they look scary well, uh, and, and, and again a- if they're actually Rottweilers, then the little people acting in that scene were probably actually terrified. I know I would have been because they would look <laughs> vicious as shit. Hopefully they were trained. They were okay. trained. But, but again, you don't necessarily be told these monsters are a huge threat. Yeah. The story tells, the way they reaction, the way it's shot. They, and, and as you mentioned, the music is incredibly effective. It's uh, by the great James and late great James Horner. Of course, he, uh, he of uh, Titanic fame. Um and he had, so I'm just going to go, I just go off on a, on a tangent for a moment here. Go for it. Uh, Particularly if it's got happens. something to do with James Horner, because I it love it. I'm going, on a, man. I'm going on a James Horner tangent. Um, now, uh, he was prolific. Yes. Um, so this film came out in, uh, where are we here? Uh, 1988. Willow, 1988. He had a year in 1988. <laughs> He did Red Heat, he did Vibes, he did Young Guns, he did The Land Before Time, Cocoon to Return, and Deathstalker and the Warriors from Hell. Um, uh, so, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous um, in there, right? Um, 
what a year to be working in 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 cinema. There's a quite a collection of work there. So his music is is memorable here. So again, his music tells us everything we need to know about the uh, monster dogs. Uh, the child is they decide that they figure out quickly that the dogs have come for the baby in kind of a sketchy way, I must say. Yes. <laughs> and they decide the child must be returned to given to what do they call them, the bigger people. I can't remember what the actual Gikinis. term they use for Gaikinis. So, yes. So um, they, in, in this world, the little people um, is called Elwins and taller people are called Daikinis and they're treated as different races, not as different sizes in the same race. So they're actually treated like different races. This, and this becomes relevant to what I'm going to say in a sec. Um, the baby, a group of them are entrusted with some warriors, Willow, and uh, a pomp- their pompous authority figure played by Mark Northover, Burglecut, which is a great fucking name, um, are entrusted with journeying into the outer world and handing the baby off to the nearest Ikeni and then coming back home. We, we quickly, very effectively communicated that the outer world is a dangerous place for, for our ones. Um, and you kind of look at this and go, you know what? That looks an awful lot like a fellowship. Yes. Yeah, but you know, almost like a fellowship that was transporting something to somewhere else in another film. Um, and the parallels between this and um, and and the Lord of the Rings films are manifold and, un- and unmistakable. Like it was, I don't think I picked it up. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but like, it was so quickly. Even if it's not just because they're small, and obviously hobbits are small, but even the character of um, of Frodo and and Willow are very similar in a lot of ways. And the way the story sets out is it's very Lord of the Rings. Very. And apparently, if you read the trivia on IMDb, and I don't know if I believe it, that apparently at one point George Lucas did want to try and do a Lord of the Rings or Hobbit film, but couldn't get the rights. Oh, really? Okay, that's interesting. Now, that is on the IMDb trivia. I'm not saying mm-hmm. it's true. Yeah, yeah. Just what I've heard. A guy at the pub said he heard it from a mate. Um <laughs> But yes, I mean, the film is is very Lord of Rings. It's almost like, hey, you know, I'd like to make a Lord of Rings film so I don't have a rise. Change your names, dates, and places. Um, why that's relevant is, is think of these characters as, you know, the, the Alwyn and the Daikini as men and hobbits and elves and mm-hmm. uh, all the different races of um, the, the Tolkien universe whatever the, the, the orcs and stuff it, the orcs might be big you know they're all different races they're not necessarily you know small well orcs are not bigger men or whatever it is so if you think about it like that the film will make a little bit more sense and the first daikini they meet is mad martigan played by val kilmer in a cage on the side of a road um the uh the cowardly characters in the in the fellowship want to give a baby off and piss off uh willow doesn't trust him so uh, Willow stays around with a baby and uh, while... Um, and his best friend. Val Kilmer. And his best friend. While Val Kilmer is freed, he turns out to be, you know, maybe not as um, as, as uh, scurrilous or scoundrel-like as one might have expected, but at the same time, he is not necessarily reliable. And this sort of sets off a chain of events that requires Willow to basically continue the journey uh, solo at times to, to return the baby um to uh the good king and queen in some particular place you're supposed to go i can't remember the exact names um uh so you know this so much better than me we did just just in case you're wondering we did watch this last night ladies and gentlemen but i was not taking notes (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, well, along the way, we we meet some other characters, including the brownies. Yeah. Um, which one of we, which are two sort of very very small uh, human type characters, I guess you call them. One is played by Kevin Pollock. I think the other one's Rick Overton. Um, and they are think R two D two and C three PO. They're kind of your comic comic relief characters uh in this or timon and pumba if you're uh yeah i, I feel fan. like they're they're closer to timon and pumba for sure um in, in, in that ballpark and you know all sorts of capers are going on while this is happening the evil queen and her daughter as we mentioned earlier played by joanne whaley the character of Sorsha, has been dispatched to try and find the baby uh, at the same time, the uh, the really quite intimidating General Kale, played by Pat Roach. Um, uh, for those, he's, he's been in all sorts of things, Conan Destroyer, Indiana Jones, Red Sonja. Um, he, he plays, he, he was terrifying when I was a kid. But General Kale, ooh, he's a, yeah. kind of like, he has a really scary skull mask. And I honestly think he should have left it on for the entire film because he's significantly less scary when he takes it off. Yeah, I'm, I I had actually, when we watched it last night, I thought, oh, I forgot he ever took it off because I was terrified of that character when I was a kid. But, yeah, significantly less scary when he takes it off. Uh, and a quick note for those who are playing at home, the name Kale, uh, General Kale, he apparently was named after the famous New York film critic Pauline Kale. Uh, if you're a <laughs> cinema studies nerd, um, you might have read some of Pauline Kale's uh, work. And there's a monster in the film later, which is named after Siskel and Ebert, the famous American film critics, yes. um, the big two-headed monster later on. Um, without going into great theater, we have that. We have a very Lord of the Rings-esque uh, journey through Dangers Untold, um, to try and get the baby to where it is. One of the tasks, they have to go to an island to meet a, uh, a well, sorceress. sorceress, I guess it's, uh, Finn Rizal. And initially, Finn Rizal was played by, for us, a very familiar uh, animal. It was, an, it was a ringtail possum, I think. Yes. Um, it was a possum. At least it was an Australian possum. Like, I looked at that and go, that is a fucking possum. Oh, yeah. There are plenty of those in my roof. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. So. Every Australian goes, huh, possum. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, like you still can tell the difference between the American ones. I'm not exactly a possum expert, but you know, here I am saying that. Um, she's been transformed into a possum by the evil queen. Uh, so Willow has to try and uh, free her from her um, from her sort of bounds and turn her back into a human being, which she does at a point in the film. I think the film ends in a really night, really great high point note when they storm, you know, the, the castle or the bad guys storm the castle where it has. Um, the, the good guys in it, and in the process, they. What did you make of a giant two-headed monster? Who sort of resulted from from um, from Warwick Davis like turning a troll into something and then dropping it in water. Um, I, I mean, I loved a, it. Yeah. It was it was gremlin esque, but it also it was. It, it what I liked about it is that Willow has shown throughout the movie like genuine natural talent for magic, but. He, he clearly hasn't had any training. Like he's enthusiastic, but not skilled yet. Um, and it was it was sort of a combination of him, first of all, not being skilled with battle. <laughs> and that's how he ended up in that position. Second of all, being a little person in a, in a big person's war or battle. 
Um, and thirdly, you add the fact that he is magical and all of those things kind of end up in this <laughs> horrible, disgraceful monster who's actually very similar to some of the monsters in Star Wars. This one just has two heads instead of one. Um, very, very reminiscent of the monsters in Star Wars. I looked at it from a... Um from a different point from more of a film net it's called rather it's called an ebersisk the two-headed dragon was called ebersisk named after gene siskel and roger even um uh it's it's beautiful stop go animation um oh, yes. the, the, the uh the actual monster um you don't see it so for me i grew up in that kind of thing so i grew up on obviously star wars but if you go back before that uh, I don't know if you ever see any like the Sinbad films or the uh, uh, Jason and the Argonauts or anything like that from the 50s and 60s. Um, there was a, I'm going to put my nerd hat on for a second. Um, <laughs> there was a, a guy who was famous for this called Ray Harryhausen. He's like the, the god of stop go animation. He did all these films that I grew up on from the 50s and 60s where, you know, that kind, he basically invented that shit or perfected right. it at the very least. Um, I don't think Ray Harryhausen worked on this because I think he might have been dead by then. Um, <laughs> but um, without Ray Harryhausen, you don't have that amazing... Um, well, that Clash of the Titans, that was the other one he did. Um, but you don't have that kind of work that, that you saw in, in films like Star Wars. Oh, yeah, he did a little film. Yeah, um, did he do some work in King Kong? I can't remember. And sorry, I'm just looking at Ray Harryhausen passed away in 2013. So he actually was very much alive when this film was made. Very um, much alive, but yeah. It's very noticeable to a Star Wars fan that the animation of the the um, the the Sis, Igus, Ibisisk, Ibisisk. is very similar to, say, uh, the Rancor in Return of a Jedi, the big monster at Jabba's yes. Palace, um, yes. or a big space worm. It's just instantly like, oh, reeks of stuff, the kind of oh, monster yeah. work that they were doing at Star Wars. And I, I would be curious to know what a young kid might have thought of it today because I was looking at it and going, oh, that's beautiful, and you don't see that anymore. And I think I kind of prefer it to, um, to CGI, but maybe it would look kind of fake to a kid. I, like, I, I honestly don't think it would, uh, obviously totally biased when I say that but I I was so impressed when we saw it last night like it's a little bit jumpy as you expect when it's it's filmed that way um but I still found it really realistic in terms of that world um so I I reckon it would it would be coming across really well done but you know I've got I, um, lots of I would hope so uh, well, not not blood nieces and nephews, but I have um, nieces and nephews, um, adopted nieces and nephews that I could probably test this on. And you know what? They're probably getting to the age where I will do so <laughs> very soon. So I will provide feedback when I find out. I had a fair thought about it and, and I thought maybe it's the fact that it's a monster that doesn't actually exist. So the, the fact that it moves in a unnatural kind of way kind of makes sense and in, in, it is unnerving in a sense because you were seeing a monster something that looks a bit creepy because it moves in a weird way um and maybe i'm just making excuses for the fact that it's nostalgic to look at something that reminded me so much of star wars but <laughs> i love the scenes with the um the, the the dragon but just this is not a film that relies entirely on that kind of animation there's also some very high tech shit going in here yeah, this is really? one of the first films to, at least for its time this is the late 80s here so it's the first film to ever to use morphing technology. Really? Um, so think when I say morphing technology, think of a technology they used in Terminator 2 
where yeah. with the T one thousand liquid metal Terminator turning into different characters. Yeah. Um, I know everyone lost their shit when that came out because it was yeah. you know it was that was so kind well of done. so high tech. Oh my god! Can you? See? And, and it looked really good. It still looks good. Um, but the the scene where where Willow turns, um, <laughs> the possum lady whose name is Finn Rizal, Finn Rizal, back into. Um, from a possum back into human being human she goes bitch. through several animal forms mm-hmm. um in it like a, an ostrich and a tiger and you see it the, char- the actual character model model morphs in on screen into those so that is the very first ever use of um that morphing technology in cinema and there's also quite a bit of blue screen work which was you know nothing particularly special you know at the time but it was really nicely done but the, the brownie characters are inserted in the film using um blue screen technology and again it looks it looks pretty decent you can tell it wouldn't yeah. be up to 2021 standards but you know it's all right yeah exactly like if a movie came out today with that you'd be like oh come on guys put in some effort but back then like it was it was really well done i was like oh my god look at the little brownies like i mean yes i was a kid so i was very gullible but yes still. but we have to remember it's of its time and it was what it was doing at the time was Pretty pretty impressive. So it's 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 classic George Lucas blending the old with the new quite nicely here. Mm-hmm. Um, what what do you make of the conclusion of the film? The the wizard off uh, um, between uh, Finn Rizal and Co. Oh look, I I am going to be completely biased, and I don't I I I loved it. I actually thought it was brilliant. The fact that. You know, Finn Rizal, who had been pegged as this sorceress who was going to be over, uh, able to overtake the queen, when clearly she wasn't going to be able to for several reasons. First of all, she's old and frail. Second of all, the queen's already beaten her once because she's turned her into a possum. Although the queen hadn't managed to kill her and she's shown that she's more than happy to kill people. So Finn Rizal clearly had some power. But, you know, so there, there's this, like, I don't know, witch off it's very harry potter it's very harry potter isn't it it is it's very harry potter um but what i loved about it was by having willow there and that final battle and him overcoming it just with the trick of the mind um it it just brought it, it brought such a beautiful element of humanity and and realism to that whole battle that um is is just brilliant like it was very much a a case or an example of good overpowering evil just by being a little bit smarter and i loved it i mean i will always and i I really enjoyed the messaging here in the sense it's like uh willow didn't have to do anything different yeah um to beat the evil queen in fact all the experiences and skills and tricks and weapons he gathered and learned along the way None of which were, I mean, he tried using some, he tried using some of them, like, and you know, none of the things that anybody gave him. It's not like, oh, it was a special potion, but the witch, you know, but the, that Finn Rizal gave him at the end of the day, he actually had what it took to win this battle exactly. from the start. Exactly, which is the exact message that the old wizard in his village had told him before any of this story even started you know his that it started with the the festival happening back in his village where he was going and and um uh, basically applying to be the apprentice of the wizard 
And he didn't follow his heart or his head around how he should approach that. He didn't get the apprenticeship. And then quietly, as he's setting off a little while later on this mission, um, the wizard said, you know, what did you really think? What was your actually your gut feeling about this? And Willow told him the answer. And he's like, well, that was the correct answer. So you've actually known all along that Willow had what it took. He just needed to believe it. And I just, I, I thought they wrapped it up beautifully at the end. I think it's, it's a bit of a cliche, right, for Disney, especially for a Disney film, which this isn't, but it, it is now. Um, <laughs> it wasn't, but it is. Um, it's Lucasfilm, right? Lucasfilm's owned by Disney now. Um, but, you know, it's, it's like, you know, you believe in yourself and just be yourself and you can be anything you want. It's such a classic Disney cliche. But I usually think, like, a lot of the time it's delivered in a very clumsy, you know, ham-fisted manner in, in films when I was a kid. And I'm like, yeah, whatever, right? Like, I mean... Like normally so, they actually they they say the line. See, I you know I told you all you needed. You do had the power in yourself. Exactly, like all of that sort of stuff. But they don't. That's that's not how this is delivered, and I think that makes it all the better. I think it elevates it in a sense because it's you don't need to be. I mean, again, you you said it earlier on. Kids are I think underestimated, and they have to be told that they have the power from the beginning, or else they won't. You know, they get it. They get yeah. it. They're smart. Like we're smart enough to know that this is. I think they would get there. I would like to think of it. I don't know if I quite so overtly picked it up when I was a kid, but it's the message is in there, buried in there quite nicely, but you don't need to be anything special because you already have quite a bit in, in yourself. And the character of Willow in this is actually quite an unusual character in a lot of ways. Like if you think about, he, he actually plays a very maternal role in this film in the sense yeah. that he is constantly being the carer of the, of, of the child, worrying about the well-being of a child. I know she has to be fed. She has to be changed. Um, that's a very maternal role for a male character uh, to, to be playing in a film in the late 80s. I mean, Absolutely. you probably still don't see it, but even to this day, you'd probably expect that role to be uh, played by a female character. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and that is never questioned in this film. It's just that is the role that he is playing. It's it's really um, really smoothly done. It it was it was an, it was I, someone pointed this out to me. I was reading about this last night. I'm like, yeah, it really is. And um, you know, the the protagonist, the antagonist, sorry, is a is, is a woman. The, the, the fight, there's a big battle between two female characters at the end of the film, which are portrayed as being you know incredibly powerful. The the uh, character of Sorsha is is a serious badass. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's it's not that she that falls in love with Val Kilmer necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, Val Kilmer is the one who takes the fairy love potion and is fawning all over, uh, you know, making a fool of himself in front of Sorsha. So again, that's not necessarily it's a bit of a a role reversal of what you might see. You know, from if you think about like an Indiana Jones film, quite often it's the you know femme fatale throwing themselves at the indie you know uh yeah. whereas in this one it's like it's it's val kilmer looking like the fool throwing himself at yeah. uh at Sorsha. so Absolutely. um i don't know if that was deliberate but um this very effectively kind of subverts some of those gender roles quite very nicely in a, in a children's film which again i think is is a good thing yeah um worth noting this film was not a success yes uh, i know and that blows design. me away and Wait, you mentioned earlier about the fact that both of us have friends that didn't really know what this was and it was not part of their childhood. Um, 
and perhaps it's simply because I loved it so much. So all of my friends growing up were subjected to it by me. I, I, I couldn't say either way. I, I have been known to have strong opinions. <laughs> um, so that's entirely possible. But I, I am still shocked at the fact that this movie was not a blazing success, particularly at the time that it was released on the back of Star Wars. It was around, it was not long after Gremlins, like that, this kind of action fantasy, you know, adventure type story was at the epitome, I would say, of that kind of um, genre. And yet this was not a huge success. It blows me away. Nor was this a critical success. It should be noted it has a meta score of 47 um, on, on Metacritic. So this is uh, these are the contemporary reviews, not, not modern reviews. Yeah. Um, so that's it, that's a middling you know critical response. It has a 7.3 from the audience. I think it's found its audience now. It's become a real cult classic. Yeah. Um, to the point where we were talking about this last night, there is a new series that has not is has been filmed or is being filmed right now to be aired on um, on Disney Plus next year. Um, a sequel series, I guess one could say. Uh, Warwick Davis is involved. Uh, it is unknown if uh, at this stage, Mel Kilmer is not listed as being uh, involved. I and I'm. Uh, uh, as I said to you last night, you told me and I was like, why? Why do they keep doing this? But the more I think about it, the more I think, well, you know what? If if what they what they pull together is a show based in the same world, um, but not the same story. So not a, a direct follow-on, but you know, um, sure, Willow is is there 30 years later or whatever, and it's a build-on for the next, you know, big bad. Um, that comes along and tries to destroy the world, then I'm okay with that, um, which would make sense that Mad Mordigan and Saoirse were not in it. Um, but I will be really pissed off if they just try to rehash that story because it's just unnecessary. And when the, a, a world was created that is so big and real and full already, there are so many more stories that could be told out of that. Um, worth noting that uh, George Lucas in classic George Lucas style expected this film to make more money than it did and hence had more content planned. Yes. So when the film didn't do so well and the studio wasn't interested in doing any more of these, he did later um, connect with, I think, a guy who wrote some of the X-Men comics and actually wrote two or three books right. um, set in the Willow world. It is unknown yet whether or not the new TV series is based off those books or not. Um, I think it would be a massive disservice to know that the original creator of the story had given you content and you've gone, nah, that'll yeah. be fine. I'll just, you know, you know, not even using it. So I hope they, I haven't read them, uh, I should note, but I, I would I would hope that they use those stories in at some the, way, shape or form. At, at the very least, that they could be inspiration. Um, but I just, I hope they don't try to do it as a TV series that's a sequel rather than, you know, TV series that, is at least 30 years later or, you know, that kind of thing. It's Willow, Warwick Davis is here as being in five episodes. So uh, it looks like he's going to be a pretty, you know, a pretty important character in the, yeah, in the story. That's, so that's enough. Yeah. 
I, I will be, uh, that's all we're doing at this stage, I think. I don't know. Um, but we'll, we'll see it. I will be very curious to check that out next year when it comes out. That said, I did say the same thing with the Dark Crystal because I loved the Dark Crystal when I was a kid. And that was kind of meh for me. Um, so, but I, I'm sure I'll check it out just out of pure curiosity. But that's, um, it says, it's an interesting time we live in in the sense that a, a, a film that was critically and commercially unsuccessful in the late 80s has now inspired a a tv series its own tv series you know 33 years later um well, at the same time if you think about it that the people now that are in positions of power and decision making in hollywood and and those sort of circles um they are of age where 33 years ago they watched Willow and loved it. They didn't care about the, the critic response and the box office smashes. Um, they saw this and loved it. And now, 33 years later, they're like talking to their people and saying, what are we going to make? You need to bring me something. Well, you know what? I loved this as a child. Go go figure out something based on that. So kind of actually. I should note, I think it's. I think it's a good thing. Like one of the things I, uh, one of the things we often talk about on my other podcast, the Armchair Producers, available now wherever good podcasts are downloaded from. Um, unfortunately, we're on hiatus at the moment because my co-host has no power. Yes, we do live in the twenty-first century. Um, but <laughs> one of the things we often do is we'll see a film and we'll be like, "This film's cool," but you know, it would really do well for a, a modern, you know, modern remake and. But that's not what they do. They go and they re remake stuff and they go, oh, a Cruella film, because everyone's very interested in the backstory of a, of a villain from a, a Disney film. So but it's kind of like stuff like maybe it was ignored or not given the right, the, the right treatment the first time around um, is what I'd like to see more of. And I think maybe that's what Willow is. Like there was, as we talked about it earlier, he recreated this incredible world. It was unique, lived in rich world with all sorts of places you could take that story and it just didn't make enough money to 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 get uh get that second film so i'm glad well it gets a chance to yeah, to, to I, have I, am, look at it. I i have a small glimmer of hope um but as you mentioned earlier um there there have been you know um recent star wars sequels that whilst i didn't hate them um they had this very rich world that they could have built off and Certainly, the the very way it ended, I was very disappointed in. So, on the upside, the Star Wars TV shows have been quite good. So, yeah, um, I, I haven't watched them. That's just me, though. Oh, I watched Mandalorian. <laughs> they have I, I watched Mandalorian. I loved season two of yeah. Mandalorian. Season one, I was so bored with, but season two was awesome. There you go. See, that's what I'm looking for. That's, if it's something like if it's something like the Mandalorian, if they give it that kind of, you um, know, if they treat it with respect. Yes. And, and they actually put the money and time into it. Maybe it'll be pretty good. So um, I'll be very curious to see what it is um, when it comes out. But um, I must say, I, I, I hadn't seen this film. Obviously, it's something you watch quite regularly. I can't remember the last time I saw it. I was thoroughly entertained. And my goodness, what a, it really washed the taste of that Care Bears, Care Bears movie out um, in, a, in a brilliant, brilliant way. It was um Definitely. was a real pleasure to go back and visit with Willow again. I'd forgotten. I think I appreciate it more now when I was a kid. Like just how how it challenges it, does not underestimate its audience. It creates a beautiful world. It looks amazing. Some of it was shot in New Zealand. Yeah. So, you know, um, well ahead of those Lord of the Rings films. Um, <laughs> and it just goes to show that like, I mean, George Lucas has no place directing films, but he could create a world like very oh, yeah. few others could. Oh, absolutely. That is 
Unquestionable, for sure. I am. Right. Um, I feel like we're ready for the wheel. We are ready for the wheel. I'm going to get the wheel up, and uh, we have some new entries on the wheel. We've had suggestions from people. Mm, excellent. And um, so, but they're going to be interesting because it's going to be films that we actually haven't seen as kids. So, and here we go. Wheel is ready. It is spinning. Oh, there goes Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> We, uh, well, this is going to be a joint one. We are going to see The Crow. Ah. Oh, I'm so excited. The Brandon Lee teenage touchstone. Oh, yeah. The, the When Susie was well and truly in, like, the throes of teenage angst and that soundtrack. Ah, yes. oh, that soundtrack. I, I think my, I think it was one of those soundtracks that everybody had to have oh, back yeah. in the 90s or... You had a friend who had a copy and you taped it off them or something. Yeah. Um, so 1994 was a crow starring Brandon Lee, directed by Australian Alex Proyas. That will be our next journey down the rabbit hole. And what an interesting one that's going to be. Because, uh, again, I haven't seen that in a very long time. But um, it was quite a bit to talk about with what happened on that film. Oh, yes. Yes, there is. I feel like I'm going to be um, uh, both... Uh, very happy and also ashamed with the teenage Susie thinking about that movie. Um, but yes, it's it's going to be awesome. Uh, well, I mean, come on, Brandon Lee was something else. Uh, so anyway, that is next week. No, next, not next week, because it's like, who knows when we're going to record it. The next expedition, whenever that may be, whenever funding comes through um, from the Royal Society to go down that rabbit hole, we'll do it. Uh, in the meantime, if you like what you're hearing, do leave us a review on your podcast app of choice. It really helps. Let's people know that we're out there. Jump on the Facebook page, The Throwback, which I believe will probably be in the description down below on your, your, your MP3 player or your iPod. <laughs> um, and um, and you, can, you can jump on there and give us a like. And if you there's a particular film you loved as a child um, and it's not Shrek, um, you know, feel free to whack it on the Facebook page. And we, we, we do take suggestions and it'll go on the wheel and maybe in 16 years from now, it will come up a little bit like <laughs> some of the stuff I put on there. Um, other than that, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for enduring our nonsense and we'll see you again the next time on the next expedition. Good night. <laughs>